Welcome everybody to Spark My Muse. This is your host, Lisa DeLay. And today I have a guest on that has written the book, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Cobus Dumay. Thank you so much, Kristen, for being my guest today. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to read a little bit of the jacket of your book to give people a sense of what's going on here in case they aren't familiar with it. I have become increasingly familiar with your book and seeing it a lot on Twitter. And I got so excited. I, especially once I saw people putting out quotes and things like that. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, this is my childhood. This is my current situation. I'm going to a conservative Christian church and this feels so familiar. So I will read this part to give people a sense. Jesus and John Wayne is a sweeping account of the last 75 years of white evangelicalism, showing how American evangelicals have worked for decades to replace the Jesus of the Gospels with an idol of rugged masculinity and Christian nationalism, or in the words of one modern chaplain, a spiritual badass. <laughs> As Dumay explains, the key to understanding this transformation is to recognize the role of culture in modern American evangelicalism. Many of today's evangelicals may not be theologically astute, but they know their veggie tales. They've read John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, and they learned about purity before they learned about sex. And they have a silver ring to prove it. Evangelical books, films, music, clothing, and merchandise shape the beliefs of millions. And evangelical popular culture is teeming with muscular heroes, mythical warriors, and rugged soldiers. Men like Oliver North, Ronald Reagan, Mel Gibson, and the Duck Dynasty clan, who assert white masculine power in defense of Christian America. Chief among these evangelical legends is John Wayne, an icon of a lost time when men were uncowed by political correctness, unafraid to tell it like it is, and did what needed to be done. So that gives a nice nugget of what we're going into with this book about 75 years or so of history. And that sweeping scope was just so helpful to kind of put into perspective basically my entire life <laughs> in yes. these terms. One of the first things I wanted to talk about is the person who's been called the Protestant Pope, Billy Graham, yeah. is this kind of factor that people seem to have in common, this, this love for Billy Graham as a kind of unifier. Uh, there's a place in the book that talks about people who like Billy Graham or evangelicals, and it was really a rehabbing of fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. It would be great if you could talk a little bit about, in a sense, how Billy Graham got started, but then the evolution and how this united Christian conservatives. Yeah, yeah. Billy Graham really is is central here. And one of the things I tried to do in this book is kind of disrupt people's notions of who Billy Graham was, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, today we have this this vision of Graham as, you know, older gentleman and mm -hmm. kind of above politics and, mm -hmm. you know, just this this evangelist. And, uh, and so one of the pictures of the book uh, presents a very different Billy Graham, right? He's young, he's dashing, he's very masculine. Mm -hmm. And he was really at the center of this public reemergence of American evangelicals that dates back to the 1940s. Mm -hmm. So in 1942, you had the National Association of Evangelicals formed, 
And they came together because they said, um, you know, evangelical or conservative Protestants really are doing really good things, but we're scattered. We don't have the power that that we really need uh, to uh, to influence America. This was in the wake of the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversies. Evangelicals largely hadn't maintained control of major denominations. So they said, let's band together mm. and let's form networks and organizations of Bible colleges and let's move into Christian publishing and have Christian books stores across the country. And let's have magazines um, with subscribers in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands and radio and then, you know, eventually television. And um, this was at the same time that Billy Graham was emerging as this popular figure uh, during the Second World War. And he was an evangelist for Youth for Christ. And um, and he was also very patriotic, right? This is a wartime effort. And he linked Christianity to the strength of the American nation and to quote unquote traditional values. And um, by the end of the decade, then World War II has ended, but we are right in the thick of the the early Cold War. Mm. And that's a really critical context um, because not only does Billy Graham move to the center of this kind of evangelical culture that the National Association of Evangelicals is wanting to advance, and they Mm. do so with remarkable success, right? Within 15 years, they've accomplished all these goals. Um, But Billy Graham is right at the center of that. And he is not just preaching gospel Christianity, which is what, you know, he'll say Mm -hmm. he's doing, Mm -hmm. but he's preaching a gospel Christianity that is firmly enmeshed in Cold War militarism. And let me explain this very briefly how this works. So um, he has embraced this idea of Christian America. And in the late 40s, there was a real threat to Christian America, and that was communism, because communism was anti-God, anti-family, and anti-American. And because the threat was a military one, the defense had to be military. And all these values of kind of traditional gender roles of a strong masculine protector to defend the nation, faith, family, and nation, all of that comes together. And that is intertwined with the quote unquote gospel Christianity that he's preaching. So Billy Graham really does place this at the center of evangelical identity. Mm. Yeah, that is really key because we're talking about a real cultural influence. You talk about things like all these consumer goods that are linked in with this sort of bubble of cultural Christianity, which most of us in, in the United States take for granted, not realizing it's pretty fringy when you look at the global church or the historic yeah. church. We're very uniquely poised in really idiosyncratic way that it also includes consumerism and marketing. Yes. A whole ecosystem that supports some of these ideas, including James Dobson's ubiquitous hold over the airwaves and people's uh, ways to raise their children. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about the cultural aspect and the consumer aspect of evangelicalism as a movement. Yeah, definitely. It's right in this, uh, you know, post-war era that, uh, you know, the the plan was reach uh, Americans through the culture. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what they do. So we have Christian magazines like Christianity Today and Christian Radio. And you have somebody like James Dobson focus on the family. But some interesting developments here. And again, kind of Mm -hmm. shifting our understanding of evangelicalism from this kind of pure theology Mm -hmm. to this cultural movement. Because if you look at, for example, the um, CBA, Christian Booksellers, Association that forms right during this time and is part of this effort. They realize that if they're going to focus on specific 
doctrines, they're going to um, splinter their market because Methodists aren't going to agree with Lutherans who aren't going to agree with, you Mm -hmm. know, fill in the blank here. That um, specific theology is going to divide the market. What will unite the market uh, are books on things like Christian living, how to be a Christian wife, how to be a Christian husband, how to raise your kids. And so this literature starts to flood the Christian market. Moving away from specific theology and kind of denominational identity and into this space where gender plays a really central role Mm -hmm. and theology is kind of set aside, at least uh, specific doctrines. Mm -hmm. And, And so that's really what we're seeing here. Now, I will also kind of pick up the historical narrative and suggest that all these values I talked about in this kind of anti-communist traditional values identity, back in the 1940s and early 50s, when these were coalescing within American evangelicalism, they weren't that different from the rest of uh, American values at the time, right? This is the baby boom. It was Cold War consensus. So evangelicals felt very much at the center of things, which is mm-hmm. where they wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that changes in the 1960s. 60s. The civil rights movement disrupts the status quo, particularly for Southern white evangelicals. The feminist movement challenges these you know, traditional gender roles. And really importantly, the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement mm. challenges ideas of American goodness and greatness. Mm-hmm. And so by the 1970s, the Dobson era, you know, and the, the rise of the religious right, mm-hmm. evangelicals are really doubling down uh, on this identity, on these issues, when many Americans are questioning them. Mm-hmm. And so this cultural evangelicalism becomes a kind of oppositional identity. It's not what unites them with other Americans. Increasingly, it's what divides them, what sets them apart. And that's why this evangelical subculture, it really thrives because internally it's it's this kind of us versus them. Don't go out there for your media. Don't go out there for your child rearing advice. You can't trust them. Stay within the fold. And here's where you're going to find the truth. Yeah, that sounds spot on to me. (laughs) I lived it. A lot of what you talk about, I find so familiar in terms of, we call it traditional gender roles, but really it's, it's a recent invention of what we mean. It is. And it's very American. Yes. There are so many books, like when I got married, which was quite a while ago now, there were books on marriage and it was all about gender roles and how you would have harmony by doing the specific role. And my husband and I both said over and over again, it's like, I'm the guy and you're the girl. Yes. Like you did something wrong. Even though our personalities really weren't gelling with these (laughs) templates that they were trying to give us. My husband is a more of a quiet guy. He's very masculine, but he's not like a warrior hunter, anything like that. So he felt a little out of step sometimes. And when a lot of the cowboy and warrior movies and books and like how to be a Christian man came out, I know he felt not just him, but other men felt a little alienated that they maybe weren't macho and alpha enough or top dog enough. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this really fascinating point of how underscored gender roles were and how you you were a good Christian based on how you fit into these templates. And there was all kinds of material to back this up and push you in this direction. You know, that's not really the gospel. That's kind of a cultural imposition. Mm -hmm. It can pervert certain things because you do realize, I could realize growing up, men were so grateful that they weren't women. Yes. Yes. But you know, you got the sense that the worst thing you can call someone is a little girl. Yes. 
Yes, you're exactly right here. Um, and so, I mean, the, the first part of my answer, I'll say that, yes, as a historian, it's evident immediately that these ideals, which are being preached and promoted as God-ordained, eternal, timeless, right, mm. are very recent inventions mm. of, you know, these ideas of gender roles. So the man is the provider and the protector. Well, that really only makes sense in white, middle-class, post-war American suburban in life, if at all, then, right? Um, and so if you look, even just historically, if you look at colonial American history, it's largely a subsistence economy. And so the role of women in colonial households is very much one of provision, right? You need women who are gardening and who are um, uh, spinning uh, wool and, and uh, or flax and weaving cloth and preserving food and doing laundry and baking. Like all of this is absolutely essential labor. It is productive labor. It's only in the 19th century that women's labor and only in the narrow white middle class and predominantly in the North gets defined as, oh, that's not labor. That's just what women do, <laughs> right? Oh, right. Um, like this household, quote unquote, work. But it's really you're a mother, you're a wife, and it, it becomes identified as something other than work. That's a very hmm. recent historical invention. And it doesn't ever apply to women of color, to working class women, really to the majority of women. And we're just talking in America and then look globally, right? right. So as a historian, this is immediately evident, but it's remarkable how this particular moment, right, post-war white middle-class American life can get packaged and sold as eternal, biblical, and timeless. But then you're right. The problem is this doesn't actually fit with many people, with the way God made many women and men. And so what you see is women really uh, chafing against these restrictions, these manufactured ideals, women who were drawn vocationally to work outside of the home, women who found fulfillment doing these things. We could talk about women who remain single, right? There are many, many uh, instances where you just don't fit neatly in these categories, but also men. And I think that's often lost in these conversations. But in researching this book and since the book has come out, I've had so many conversations with men just like your husband who never felt like they fit with this model of rugged Christian masculinity and never enjoyed the weekend retreats with guys from their church who would read these books and just say, this is not who I am. Now, what's interesting is the response of men to that feeling of disconnect. Some left the church over that, left their individual church. Some left Christianity saying, if this is what it means to be a Christian man, this is not who I am. I can't do this. Others stayed. And for some of those, really interesting, they realized they weren't an alpha male, but they believed that this was the kind of leadership required of men. And so they accepted their role as beta men and gave their loyalty and support to the most alpha in the room or in the country, as the case may be, because they, even though they realized it didn't fit them, they then understood that they were not called to leadership roles and they would give their loyalty to the men who seemed to most embody this rugged, even ruthless masculine leadership. Right. And you mentioned this talking about culture and movies and things like that, about cowboys and warriors and what a man's supposed to be like. And of course, John Wayne, the big icon of masculinity for a lot of men in terms of a, an inspiration or something like that. In our church, there was something that happened that was a first, I know this is a 
common thing. Uh, women wanted to get started in, in reaching out specifically to women because they couldn't reach out to both men and women because it wasn't their place. So mm -hmm. they reached out towards women that was very gendered. Yes. But it took about three or four years for the men to have their own ministry. And then it was, you could see the gendered stuff. So it was yes. like, we're going to watch a war movie. We're going to yes. go eat steaks and shoot guns. and <laughs> Exactly. It really kind of began to lump in very specific ways. You talk about some of the inspirations being things like Braveheart and, and John Wayne movies and, and even um, Promise Keepers, which my husband went to at least one or two of those. And it was a way to be like, yeah, we're men together and there could be a sensitive side maybe, but there's this language of servant leadership I would love you to drill down into. This is a really, really fascinating point about uh, something that gets bandied about all the time. I hear servant leadership all the time and it's seen, I think there's a humbleness there, but it still is a very entrenched gender role. Maybe you could dig yeah. into that. I have found that this is one of the most sensitive subjects that I cover in mm. Jesus and John Wayne, this idea of servant leadership. Yeah. Um, the thing is, it means so many different things to so many different people, right? And so I'll put that out there right away. And, you know, any of your listeners might personally have encountered this rhetoric of servant leadership may vary. That said, it is definitely a concept that we should all be a lot more critical about and introspective about. So how I see that working out in history, and, and here I'm building on the work of other scholars too, particularly the work of Bethany Morton, who wrote a book. It's called To Serve God and Walmart. And it looks oh. at how this rhetoric of servant leadership is used in corporate America and in religious spaces to basically give middle management men the idea that they are leaders, even as they are really not empowered in any capitalist sense. All right. So that's kind of like her background. And then I look at how it's used in religious spaces, um, particularly in the 1990s when it becomes quite popular. And as part of this uh, kind of broader evangelical men's movement in the 90s, I will say the 1990s is the decade that I found most fascinating in this whole narrative because mm. uh, it's a time of transition. Uh, you know, I already talked about how critical that Cold War context was for um, having these values all come together and move to the center of evangelical identity. But in the 90s, the Cold War comes to an end, right? <laughs> and, and so there's a lot of talk of confusion in evangelical circles. It is so confusing. What does Christian politics look like now? What does foreign policy look like now that the Cold War is done? And you have people moving in different directions, like we really need to tackle global poverty. We really need to pay attention to the global persecution of Christians. Maybe this whole, you know, kind of culture wars, politics, maybe the time has passed for that. What does it mean to be a Christian man? You know what? Maybe feminism is here to stay. Maybe we need to move away from this more macho model of masculinity, you know, the John Wayne model. And so it's a time of really interesting conversation. And this is the Promise Keepers movement trying to answer this question. They really add to the confusion because they're answering it in all kinds of different ways. Mm. You have promise keeper speakers who are all out egalitarian in terms of gender roles. You have straight up patriarchal teachings as part of promise keepers. But mostly you have this kind of muddy middle where they're saying we want to hold on to patriarchy, but not the harsh patriarchy. So they advance something that um, scholars have come to term soft patriarchy, you know, a kinder, gentler version of patriarchy. They still want the warrior masculinity, but they talk about tender warriors, like mm -hmm. trying to split the difference. Again, 
Hmm. And this is the context where servant leadership really uh, flourishes, right? Yes, men are to be leaders. Absolutely. They are called to be leaders, but be nice about it. You are leaders for the sake of your wife and children, for the sake of your church. Yes, you are a leader, but you are to do so humbly in serving. Now, for some men, that could really soften their maybe harsher edges of patriarchy and masculine leadership. And some men really did embrace the humility there. But too often, men could basically cover their own assertive um, and sometimes coercive leadership style by claiming they were doing it in very humble ways, by claiming they were doing it for women, for children, for the church, for God. So it ends up becoming a kind of cover for the same old patriarchy, but with this guise of humility. And so, you know, I think that that's one of the things that that this book should prompt us to do is to be a little bit more self-critical about language like servant leadership. How is it actually functioning? Who is it actually privileging? And who is it excluding? Yeah, that's a really good point. Servant leadership I've heard used in so many different ways from so many different people that mean different things. And sometimes it, it's a welcome relief. <laughs> yeah. And then other times it's kind of it's like a, a so-called benevolent paternalism, yes. perhaps. And maybe from a man's point of view, well, what's, what's wrong with that? You know, yeah. but not knowing what the other side is like, not being a woman, not welcome in spaces and certain roles is a junior human status is how I feel yeah. about it personally. And if you're not on the receiving end of that, yes. I don't know that you can tell there's a blind spot there. And I think that there's been great harm done in, in sort of like, you know, you work in the nursery, you, mm-hmm. you women, and um, clean up after the, the suppers. Well, we're servant leaders, so we'll put the tables away. Yeah. You yes. know what I mean? It's very, yes. women do this and men do this. Because so many people don't fit these boxes. And these boxes really are not based on scripture, right? Because if you look to scripture, and one of the questions that I do get asked a lot is, okay, then, you know, this book is convincing, but tell me what is biblical masculinity, right? And then I say, okay, you know, I'm a historian. I I can talk about the past. Here, you know, I'm just an amateur, but sure, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you my opinion. And to me, it seems like, you know, a good reminder that the vast majority of the Bible is not gender specific. Vast, mm-hmm. vast majority. So let's start there. And then, you know, what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian man? I'd say we could start with the Beatitudes. We mm-hmm. could start with the fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. If you look at the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? Mm-hmm. These are pretty nurturing attributes. Mm-hmm. If that's our starting point, then what are we doing mm-hmm. creating these boxes that essentially say those are great virtues for the ladies? Mm. Whatever the time is in the last 75 years, you can see there's always a crisis. Mm-hmm. There's always a crisis. You know, it's the Cold War. It's it's secular humanism. It's feminism. It's radical Islam. The, the threat to religious liberty. There is always a crisis that demands something different of men demands that they fight, demands that they are ruthless warriors doing whatever whatever needs to be done, using violence to achieve order. Mm-hmm. So what happens is these traditional Christian virtues get set aside for men, for Christian men, and instead they embrace this warrior masculinity with some pretty clear repercussions. Mm-hmm. 
because they end up having to reshape Christianity itself because the Jesus of the Gospels doesn't actually align very well with this warrior mm-hmm. masculinity. So they end up changing the Jesus in the Gospels mm-hmm. so that he becomes this you know, rugged warrior with tattoos down his leg, charging into battle, wielding a bloody sword. Mm. The gospel itself does end up getting altered and Jesus ends up getting changed to align with this model of masculinity rather than shaping masculinity and femininity and just Christian discipleship around Jesus Christ. Yeah, brilliant. That's the big fear you sense with some men is what if Jesus is a sissy? You know, what? Oh, my God. You know, that would be a nightmare. Then yes. I would be a sissy you know, if I followed yeah. Jesus. It, yes. You can feel the fear yes. that they will be diminished if they do things, if they really are known for things that are fruit of the Spirit, which is you know, the Holy Spirit's work in us. Yeah. Um, People other than Jesus become the role models. And this is really what you talk about. You talk about the cowboys like Ronald Reagan, who comes in like a cowboy wearing a cowboy hat. And you you talk about John Wayne, who is not in any way a a man who was full of fruit of the spirit. And he was quite anti-Christian. And of course, later Trump, a lot of people wondered what in the heck were people doing voting for him who are Christians because he obviously had a, has had a life antithetical to Christianity, is obviously an outsider, but he did fill the role of Alpha, the guy who would punch the bully in the yard, as you have in your book. It would be great if you could talk a little bit to the idea of who inspired other than Jesus, because Jesus yeah. didn't become the focal point for character inspiration. Yes. Yes, and this is exactly exactly right. So, you know, the men who have been formed by, you know, traditional Christian virtue are not these rugged, ruthless warrior types, which is why Christians who are propping up this kind of militant conception of Christian manhood have to go outside of Christianity to find their heroes. Mm-hmm. And that's why they look to um, people like John Wayne. And I'll just say a little bit about John Wayne because Uh, You know, what he came to symbolize as the icon of conservative American manhood. We look at his movies, you know, he's the cowboy hero, Mm -hmm. uh, this individualist who who brings order through violence by subduing uh, Native Americans, right? Mm -hmm. It is a heroic white Christian masculinity. Mm -hmm. And John Wayne's movies make that very clear. So on the Wild West, uh, subduing Native Americans on the sands of Iwo Jima, the Japanese, Green Berets, the Vietnamese, the Alamo Mexicans, right? There's a consistent yeah. pattern here. And then also in his real life politics, he reinforces this, you know, very pro law and order politics and quite blatantly racist as mm-hmm. well. So that's the John Wayne hero. For many others of a younger generation, it's Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. Yeah. And if I could have squeezed that into the title of this book, <laughs> Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, I probably would have. Um, but here too, right, this this model of kind of rugged, ruthless violence um, that is justified because the threat is so real. The threat to a woman's purity, the threat to a nation as it's conceived, the threat to freedom. Hmm. These models of masculinity are imported. Again, the secular is the ideal Mm -hmm. Um, So somebody like John Wayne, somebody like Donald Trump, somebody who really was not going to be cowed by political correctness, as you read at the beginning, 
who was not going to be constrained by traditional virtue, by traditional civility, by mm-hmm. traditional democratic norms and institutions. And that's what we see happening in terms of evangelical political engagement, as well as their cultural identity here. The big shift that happened that I could sense after 9-11 and the, yeah. the threat was real, we were going to war, the wrong country, but we were, <laughs> we're going to war. I always thought it was interesting that people from Saudi Arabia blew up the tower, but we were going to have a war somewhere else. But it was so important for people to think nation first. This was interesting because this nationalism, which we take for granted here, I think, in conservative Christianity as, well, this is being a good Christian, is being patriotic and loving your country. This is a kind of a co-op of different ideas pushed together to have a kind of us versus them war mentality that isn't as apparent in the Bible because the Bible is about underdog. You know, it's about (laughs) the oppressed and Jesus comes as an underdog in in every way, in in poverty and empire. He's abused by empire. He's a, a man of color. So maybe you could just pull together what is up with nationalism and maybe since the period of 9-11, what do you see happening in the conservative Christian circles? Yeah. So, you know, Christian nationalism is key here. This idea that uh, America was founded as a Christian nation, Mm -hmm. um, a really a view that contradicts what we know from history. I mean, yes, there were Christians Mm -hmm. uh, among our founders, but it was not founded as a Christian nation. It was not God's special Mm -hmm. chosen nation as many conservative evangelicals insist. So there's a lot of literature on that. But what that ends up doing is is really uniting Christianity with one particular nation over against all others. Mm-hmm. And as you say, the Bible is filled with stories of the underdog, mm-hmm. um, but it's also you know a universal message, right? All tribes and nations are going to be coming yeah. under Christ. Yeah. And so biblical teaching, the gospel truth, ought to be breaking down these mm-hmm. national boundaries it's the body of Christ, communion of, of the saints throughout time mm-hmm. and space. A good reminder because we can forget that um, if we are formed in, in certain spaces here. Yeah. But 9-11, yes, very important. Because again, I've been saying in the 1990s, things were up for grabs. Mm. Ideas of masculinity, of politics. and um, But what we see happening over the course of that decade is a kind of backlash forming. In politics, a number of political act were not comfortable with this. You know, let's rethink this culture wars politics. They double down on the culture wars. And you have the Clintons in the White House, and that helps uh, with this effort. And you also have within the evangelical men's movement, people starting to say, oh, things are getting too soft. Soft Mm -hmm. patriarchy, tender warriors. The emphasis is too much on the tender. We Mm -hmm. need to get back to the tough. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of the 1990s, you have several books being written on um, trying to like revive this more macho masculinity. Mm -hmm. And these books appear on the shelves in 2001. Mm -hmm. We're talking Aldridge's Wild at Heart, Mm -hmm. uh, James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys, Doug Wilson's Future Men, Mm -hmm. right? All saying, no, testosterone is key. Mm -hmm. And this warrior masculinity and boys will be boys. And we need to fight against the emasculation of American men. And we Mm -hmm. need to do that to defend, again, faith, family, and nation. Mm -hmm. These books are all on the shelves of Christian bookstores when terrorists strike the United States Mm -hmm. on September 11. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, Aldridge, right, God is a warrior God and men are made in his image. Mm -hmm. Every man has a battle to fight. 
all of a sudden that battle is not just metaphorical, right? right. Yeah. And so 9-11 is critical to the success of these books. Eldridge will go on to sell more than 4 million copies of Wild at Heart. And the success of that book means that there are going to be dozens of copycat books Mm -hmm. that just flood the market in coming years. Mm -hmm. And they influence evangelicalism to an incredible extent and they beyond evangelical circles as well to really identify Christianity with the American nation and the requirement of men, American men, Christian men to fight. It's pro-military, it's Mm pro-war. Actually, when I first encountered this topic that became Jesus and John Wayne, it was right around the year 2005, 2006. That's Mm -hmm. when students of mine introduced me to John Eldridge's book. And I read it and I thought, wow, this really isn't very biblical, right? Evangelicals Mm -hmm. like to pride themselves on being Bible-believing Christians, but he's really drawing a lot more from Braveheart than he is from (laughs) the Bible here. And this was the early years of the Iraq War. And as you say, It was a contested war in American society, but not among evangelicals. And we had all this survey data coming out saying American evangelicals, far and away, more supportive of the Iraq war, of preemptive war in general, way more comfortable condoning the use of torture, embracing Mm -hmm. aggressive foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And so I just started to ask, you know, what might one of these things have to do with the other? And that's really the thread that pulling that through, understanding the history and then understanding the implications of it, that really is the story of Jesus and John Wayne. There's a through line that you can see that you depict so well that is, I think, so helpful. No matter where you are on the spectrum of Christianity, whether you're progressive, conservative, somewhere in the middle, it's really interesting to see this through line because you're pulling back to a broader picture. When you've lived through it, you're you're noticing a few things here and there, but you haven't done the research. And I'm not sure if I mentioned you teach history at Calvin. Yes. That's your jam, you know, the history part. Yes, I'm a historian. And and that's what this book is. It's a history book. It's, it's a work of history. But because I focus on evangelicalism as a popular culture, right, because I'm taking mm-hmm. very seriously this evangelical culture of consumption, because I think it really matters, not just what evangelical theologians are doing off in their seminaries, but I think it really matters what James Dobson is saying to millions of Americans every single day on the radio. Literally, you know, 4 million books, (laughs) copies of one book. So what was in that book? What did it do for men? What did it do for women? How did it shape their understanding of what it means to be a Christian. How did it shape their values? How did it shape how they lived? It's a popular history. And so I think it really does connect with a lot of readers. I have received so many hundreds of letters Mm -hmm. from readers, mostly evangelical, and almost all of them say, this is the story of my life. Mm -hmm. And then they prove it. Like they give me paragraphs (laughs) of specifics. Some of them even send pictures of their bookshelves. And then they say, But I never understood how all these pieces fit together because there is a larger history, right? There is a larger history of evangelicalism. There is a larger history of American politics. And their personal history does fit in this larger story. And it is really important that people understand how their own lives fit within these larger narratives. It's really fascinating. And I think, too, that if there's a point when we take our faith seriously, our walk with God and our following Jesus seriously, we do have to check in from time to time and see, is my life, is my culture mirroring 
Jesus of the Bible in, in his life and how he treated people and where he was seen in culture of his day, he didn't want to be a king or a warrior. <laughs> you know, so I think that has been recast in many ways by certain people like, oh, yes, he did. He punched you in the face, if he, <laughs> something like yeah. that. I also wanted to ask you, because this seems so relevant to where we are today in terms of how I've noticed what had started out as Blue Lives Matter, this pushback to Black Lives Matter. But now I see the signs back the blue. And of course, you see the signs um, pro-police and supporting police and things like that. But this is, I feel very tied in to this aspect that we're speaking about. It's kind of a new turn about law and order and you either support the police or you don't. And then you're a bad Christian, maybe if what, you don't support the police? Are you like a a monster? Right. Instead, that takes away any kind of critical things that need to happen toward injustice or righting wrongs or making sure things are truly equitable. Do you think you could speak to the law and order piece? Yeah, yeah. You know, and so there is a long history here of seemingly neutral language. Law and order sounds really good, right? That phrase has always had very specific racial connotations. So it's talking about white law enforcement enforcing order on civil rights activists and particularly in the late 60s in the context of some of these quote unquote race riots. Although there's a new book by Elizabeth Hinton just out called America on Fire that says we need to recast these as racial protest movements in the late 60s, right? as African-Americans realize the limits of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, to really address the inequalities that they continued to face in this country. And so law and order politics very much promoted by conservative white Americans to suppress dissent and to suppress African-Americans in particular who are trying to draw attention to continuing inequalities. Now, yeah, when we look at something like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and debates over law enforcement today, there is um, so much kind of sloppiness in how these debates take place uh, because the protest movement is not against all law enforcement, although it is pointing to cultures of inequality within law enforcement. It is pointing to systemic racism and systemic bias within law enforcement We need to be able to parse these out a little bit more carefully, right? That you can have full admiration for police officers, women and men of all races who put their lives on the line to to protect fellow citizens. Absolutely. And you can also say, and let's hold all law enforcement accountable. And so if we have evidence, which we do have, of racial profiling, if we have evidence of inequality, evidence of bias. Let's work on that. That's good for law enforcement. It's good for American citizens. But what happens is culturally, these become such hot button issues. And with conservative American Christians, there has been a long sustained effort to really push back against that critique, to push back against um, listening to even our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not white, who say, no, there is a problem. Please listen to us. And instead to present this all or nothing, either you are pro-police or you're against police. Culturally, this this is very much evident. So at the end of the book, I talk about going into a Hobby Lobby store where you can see this kind of gendered Christianity on full display, again, through the products that people consume, the things they put on their wall in their home. Mm. 
I've written elsewhere too on how much this particular vision of law enforcement is promoted in these spaces. And so Hobby Lobby has a couple of shelves, big shelves devoted to law enforcement, to figurines of heroic white police officers holding Mm -hmm. the hands of little children, Mm. prayers for our police, Blue Lives Matter flags, I stand for the flag, I kneel for the cross. These are very clearly marketed to conservative white Christians and are actually very offensive to the pleas of Black Americans and Black Christians, pleas for equality and pleas for justice. And yet it's just taken for granted by so many conservative Christians. Well, this is just patriotism. This is just Christianity. This is just what it means to be a good American, a good Christian. And so we really do need to listen to to other voices, including those of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not white, to be able to handle these issues with more care, with more compassion, and seek justice together. I think that sometimes there is a lack of curiosity among conservative Christians who do not have close friends that are people of color. They might know someone, they, proximity isn't the same as intimacy, but if you really listen to our brothers and sisters, that I have good friends that I communicate with every day, they tell you something different and we should at least be, at the very least, be curious yeah. and then do what we can to alleviate their burden, even if it just means saying, I stand by you, are you doing okay? What can I do to help you personally? But I think sometimes the relationships maybe aren't there to see the actual suffering that's happening and the terror that some of my Black brothers feel when a police officer gets behind them in traffic. They don't yeah. know for sure they are truly concerned with their lives. And that is something completely out of the experience of white people. Unless you might be like a criminal with a warrant out for your arrest, there isn't really a fear for your life when you see a police officer. And this has become, I think, minimalized. Like, well, that doesn't really happen. But when I hear my friends speaking to me, yes, I'm scared. It's important to point out that the relationships aren't there, I think you said, right, for many white Christians. Mm -hmm. And that is no mistake. Uh, The relationships aren't there because we live in a segregated society. Our neighborhoods are largely still segregated, and that did not happen naturally. There was government intervention to make it this way. Another great book, The Color of Law, you can read all about it. And churches reinforced this. Churches participated in white flight. Christians um, who didn't want to desegregate their schools formed their own Christian academies, white flight academies. This is part of our history. And so we have to work hard to break down these segregated spaces. And I still very much live in white Christian spaces. Mm -hmm. I teach at a predominantly white Christian university Mm -hmm. um, that is not very hospitable to people of color. When I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, a very racially diverse city, but very racially segregated in terms of um, neighborhoods, I chose one of the two churches in my denomination because I had requirements. You have to attend a church in your denomination or, you know, from an approved list to teach at my university. So right Mm -hmm. there, reinforcing segregation because of the long history here of race and religious traditions. Mm -hmm. I chose one of the two churches in town that was somewhat Mm multiracial and multi-ethnic bilingual. So African-American, Hispanic, and white. And even there, it was white dominated. Mm -hmm. And the church after about 10 years fell apart because of these tensions couldn't be reconciled. That said, 
it was in that church that I first had these kinds of relationships that you're talking about. And I'll just mention one. In my small group, there was a woman uh, in her 50s, uh, late 50s, I think at the time, lovely woman, African-American woman, and uh, just salt of the earth. She was a leader in the church. She was an elder, such a godly woman. And one time in our small group, she shared uh, what happened the previous week. Uh, she had left work, a late night cleaning job, and um, on her way home was tailed by the police, was pulled over by the police, was brought to jail for no reason. She wow. was terrified. She was taken to jail? Taken to jail. Yes. I think it was maybe a taillight, something like that, right? It was, it was just utterly foreign, the story to those of us in the group who were white. And it started this conversation of how many times have you been to jail? And the racial disparity, uh, the, those of us who were white in the small group were just staring like, never. What do we mean? <laughs> And to hear the stories of, you know, anybody who is not white, oh, yes, and then this, and then this. And again, you know, I knew these people, and I knew this woman, and I knew her story, and and that has stayed with me for so long, because otherwise it is very easy to think, well, I haven't done anything wrong, so that's why I don't end up in jail. When in fact, I speed, I've gotten in trouble, I've had a tail light out, I've had all those things and I get this nice little warning and every once in a while I get a ticket, but they always take it down, you know, like, okay, you should be $250, we'll give it to you $175. I'm like, thank you, sir. You know, and that's my experience. And just to know that that is not everybody's experience is, should open us up to exactly that curiosity and humility. It's important that we know real people and what they're actually going through, not what we hear about or what we suppose or what other people tell us, but what is actually happening and listen to the stories. Be good listeners. And I appreciate that when you read your book, it is just a great picture of what's going on and what we might be missing. And I really appreciate that. I hope it's a healing medicine. It might be a little nasty washing down for some people, but that they take what has been laid out and come to the conclusion, I must have missed something. There's a piece missing in my Christian understanding of what people are going through. What is normal? What I think is normal isn't normal. It's just normal in what I have supposed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I have been incredibly impressed with the way people have received this book, the way Mm. conservative white evangelicals have received this book. Mm. So one early review called it urgent and sharp elbowed. And I think that gets it exactly (laughs) right, right? It is an urgent book. There are some sharp elbows here. I really wanted to tell the truth. I didn't want to coddle people. I, I really wanted to say, hey, as a historian, this is what we know. And this is something that we as Christians do need to grapple with. Mm-hmm. But the the really exciting thing is despite its sharp elbows, this book has been received with such humility mm-hmm. by so many conservative evangelicals who say, yes, this is a story of my life. And they immediately pivot to not just distance themselves from this and say, oh, some of this is bad stuff, Mm -hmm. but to say, I've been complicit in this. Mm -hmm. What was it, right, about Mm -hmm. what was I getting from this? Why could I not see what was really happening here? Why did I choose not to see? What was this doing for me? And people are really unpacking the cultural layers to their faith, um, but not in a way of saying, I'm rejecting Christianity here. Right. That's not what I'm hearing at all. In fact, I hear from so many readers that this is kind of a spiritual awakening or mm. reawakening for them. 
because it helps them to do exactly what you're saying, like go back to the scriptures, take the pulse once again, what is in uh, the Bible? Who is Jesus? What is at the heart of the gospel? Mm -hmm. And is my faith, are my values, my cultural values, my political values, are they in fact aligned with this radical gospel message. And so I've had a lot of readers say, yes, it's a grueling process. It's an ongoing process, Mm -hmm. but it's cathartic. And it Mm -hmm. is, there is a lament here, but there is also hope because Mm -hmm. there's goodness underneath this all. It really is a call to greater faithfulness. And honestly, Mm -hmm. as a historian, that is more than I could ask for that that it's being received by Christians in this way. It really is incredible. I'm so glad that there's some appreciation and an attitude of a contrite heart, perhaps, or just yes. uh, to understand, oh, we, you know, we may have made some mistakes and this may be an inflection point for change that puts things to rights. I think it is hard when you're in a culture and you're the fish in the water and you don't notice the water. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Something happens, like my Black brothers and sisters I spoke to, what's been happening is the cameras are rolling. Now, I think police are probably less brutal than they've ever been because they know they're on camera and everybody's filming them. And so what's been strange to me is the shock among white people. I can't believe it's so bad. And I'm thinking, I bet it's less bad than it's ever been. Yes. And then being shocked in a good way, but by George Floyd and thinking, oh my goodness, um, you could just get killed. I felt a, felt a shift happening. The people who might've not thought that race was an issue or mattered much to thinking, my goodness, did I just see someone murdered just now? So I feel like there is an inflection point happening with trying to be more aware of what's happening, maybe in gender, but certainly in racial terms that hasn't maybe happened before. Yeah. And maybe we'll see a shift. This kind of veneration of of law and order is often unexamined that once it is, you realize this is law and order for some people, but not for other people. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any kind of nugget or anything, an ask or request of my audience or anybody reading the book that you'd like to impart now? Yeah. You know, I think that um, this is an inflection point. It certainly feels like one for white Christians in America right now. And what I do see is I see a lot of honest engagement, again, a lot of humility, um, a lot of striving for greater faithfulness. But I see that mostly on the level of the individual. And and that is really critical, right? It is critical right now that I think in some ways things got so off course because too many people declined to speak their truth. Too many people decided we need to show deference to authority We need to not rock the boat. We need to not disrupt the ministry of the church, the mission of this organization. We don't want to offend friends and family. We just don't want to cause trouble. Cumulatively, that has not been healthy for the church. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not been healthy for the witness of the church, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so I think right now, one important thing is for people to, um, on an individual level, to speak truth, to ask questions to not just go along with the status quo. And it might cause discomfort. It might disrupt relationships. But you know, we are called to be people of truth. And I think that um, as Christians, we, we need some courage there. We need some courage to, um, to confront harsh truths about our own traditions 
and and really work together to try to be more faithful. So I think we need courage. I will say also that um, I'm not seeing an awful lot of this soul searching or evangelical reckoning happening at institutional levels. Or when I do see signs of that, usually it's uh, stifled rather quickly uh, because there are powerful forces that have an interest in maintaining the status quo. There are powerful donors, constituents, and it's really hard to kind of change the direction of evangelicalism or of a large institution. And so I think that's a tension I see right now. But what I will say is individually, it's really important for people to be honest and to speak truth. And it will often be disruptive. I know of people who've lost their jobs over this. Mm -hmm. I know people who have very strained family relationships. But I also know that not one person that I've spoken with, even people who have paid enormous costs in this, regret what they've done, regret speaking truth and seeking justice. And um, and so that's what I would say is there is a beloved community that exists in seeking truth and pursuing justice and that, you know, whatever that means for you and where you find yourselves, I hope that you can draw on courage um, because that really is the heart of the gospel message. Jesus absolutely disrupted all of our expectations. And the heart of the gospel, it seems to me, is who Jesus was. He 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 came to divest himself of power. He did not grasp for worldly power. He continued to mess with our expectations of what the Messiah was going to do and, and to be. And I think that as much as we can follow that Christ, uh, that's really the challenge for American Christians for the church globally. Thank you so much, Kristen. I just want to see if you can tell us where to find you, where listeners can find more about you online. Sure. I have a website, kristendumez.com. It's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-D-U-M-E-Z. So it looks like Dumez. But I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, my handle both places is at K-K-Dumez, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And uh, I post a lot of writings there, interact a lot with readers, and I'm there way too much. So that's <laughs> if you're looking for me, you can find me there. <laughs> awesome. I really appreciate you sharing with us today. And uh, I hope your book gets seen by all the eyeballs it needs to be seen by. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 